following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, good morning. Uh, just a quick announcement. Ooh, that's pretty loud. Um, quick announcement about Covenant Community. Um, um, it is our effort to try to shepherd people in a more intentional and better way. It's um, honestly not a perfect program, and it, it uh, sadly does not really create the kind of community that I think we all need, but it's a step uh, for us as a church to be able to try to shepherd people in a place where people come and go so often, and it's just hard to keep track of people. So the covenant part of it is we're committing to shepherd you more intentionally, um, on your part, it's a commitment to just tell us who you are and um, put yourself as part of the body here. So if you're interested in that, if you haven't signed up, we'd really encourage you to do that. Um, I think it will make um, your life here in Chiang Mai better, and it would certainly help us serve you better. Uh, we're looking this morning in uh, Leviticus chapter 17 and 18. I'm going to actually just read... Uh, to start off from chapter 18, um, and not the whole chapter, because um, a lot of nakedness in this chapter, and I don't think you're supposed to say the word naked in church, so uh, we're not going to read the naked parts too much. Okay? So we're going to read uh, 1 through 6 and then 19 through 30. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. Jumping over to verse 19. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations, so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the, nations that, uh, the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, 
The persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs uh, that uh, that were practiced before you and never to make yourself unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Um, Before we jump into the passage, quick quiz question, uh, survey. I want you to raise your hand on this one. Are you a right-left kind of person or a north-south kind of person? How many right-left kind of people? Like directions, you know, you you, you see the world all in rights and lefts. How many of you are north-south kind of people? How many of you are Google Maps kind of people? (laughs) Right? Um, Of course, before the day of Google Maps, when you didn't have to worry about it, um, it's interesting how people would orient themselves. And I'm a little bit dyslexic. Like, I get right and left mixed up. So that just didn't work for me. Because it was always like, no, no, the other left, you know, as I'm turning right. And, right? So uh, all my life, I, and I developed a pretty good internal compass where I just kind of had this, always this sense of where north was. Or at least I thought I had a sense of where north was. Um, but I, I discovered that sometimes I could be wrong. And so it was important to check that. And really, the time when I, I most realized how off my compass could be was when I first moved to Chiang Mai many years ago. And I just thought I had this instinct. I mean, I thought, I thought my internal compass was like as accurate as that needle on a real compass. I just thought I knew. But uh, after living here for a while, I realized, man, I wasn't even close, right? And it's because no, nothing here ever really quite lines up directly north, south, east, west. And nothing's ever quite a 90-degree turn, you know, it's a off a few degrees. And so you make a few of those and pretty soon you're off. So it's important to check um, with an outside source, right? Uh, You can rely somewhat on your internal compass, but at some point it's good to check that with an outside compass, especially if you're out in the mountains or in the wilderness. And and as a kid, I spent a lot of time in the woods and the mountains. And that's how I could keep from getting lost or disoriented. And so I I I learned I needed to check that compass well, of course, nowadays it's all pointless and, and now it doesn't matter if you're right or left or north or south because you just plug it into your iPhone. We don't give directions more anymore. We send pins on locations, which uh, is much more effective, actually. Um, but uh, sadly, there's no app for that for our moral compass, right? I haven't found that app yet. The moral compass app, you can just download and you give people moral directions. Okay, should I do this? Should I not do that? And uh, it kind of works the same way. We call it a moral compass because it, it directs us into the right path. Into what is right versus what is wrong. It sets for us a true north, a true standard of right. And when we orient ourselves to what's right, we, we set our life on, on a course that's correct, that's proper, that's righteous, that's good. Um, and and there, there really is no app for that. And... And the truth is we have our own internal compass, our internal moral compass called our conscience. And oftentimes our conscience can be a very good guide. And uh, we we do something and we just sense, I think that's wrong, right? We get this trigger inside that that something's uh, wrong. And so uh, it's it's good to have that. But uh, just like my sense of north and south can be radically off, Likewise, our conscience can be seriously out of whack, right? And it's, it's, it's pointing to true to, to north can be just off. And so it's important that we have an outside way to check our moral compass, our conscience. Um, sadly, in the world today, 
too many people, Christians included, uh, check their outside compass, their outside moral compass against culture and society. We, we look around us and we say, well, what does the world say is right? And if the world approves something, then we say, well, it's okay then. It's all right. I can set my moral compass by the moral standards of the world. Uh, maybe that worked 50 years ago when, uh, at least in the Western world, culture was shaped a lot more by the Bible. But rapidly, culture is moving farther and farther away from God. So that what the, what the world says is true north is, is probably actually true south. Like it's getting towards about 180 degrees off. And so if you are setting your moral compass by outside, by, the, by culture, by the world around you, you're going to head into moral destruction. Right? It's not going to work. We need a better standard. Of course, God is that standard and he's given us his word. And that's really the context for what's going on in, in Leviticus, especially chapters uh, 17 to the end of the book. Uh, the people of Israel had left Egypt, uh, an idol-worshiping place where they did not honor God, and they, they did not have a, a good moral compass. And they were going into Canaan, where the Canaanites worshipped all kinds of different gods. And they also did not have a moral compass. And so God warns them that they need to be dis- different they need to be distinct. They need to be set apart from these cultures that they as a nation would reflect God's glory and they would be a witness of who God was in his character by how they lived their life. Uh, so he's going to set their moral compass for them. He's going to show them what his true north is and he expects them to follow his, his customs, his rules, uh, not those of the world around them. Uh, But it's important before we jump into chapters 17 and 18 and we look at these moral codes, these rules, because this is what happens. And and, and if you're you're here this morning and you're not really too sure about Christianity and you're kind of new to Christianity, you're going to say, oh, that's it. This is religion things all just about rules. God's just telling you what to do all the time. And he's just this random God who just makes up these rules to wreck your life. And that would be one way to look at it. And if we just jumped into these chapters and didn't understand... The first 16 chapters, it would be easy to get that impression. Um, What are rules about? Well, it's important to see that the book of Leviticus breaks down into two main sections. In the first section, verses chapters chapters 1 through 16 that we've spent the last few weeks going through, the key word of those chapters is atonement. We looked at all the different ways that the Israelites could bring sacrifices to the temple and they could deal with their sin. And atonement means a couple of basic things. It means that you have messed up seriously. You have sinned against the holy God and you've done things in your life that dishonor him. And there's a penalty for that. And the penalty in every case is death. How big, how small, when you violate God's laws and God's rules, the penalty, the Bible says, the consequences and penalty of sin is death. Uh, so God could require the life of the sinner the moment they sin. But he is a gracious God, and he is patient, and he is loving. And so God provided a way to deal with that sin through atonement. And what they would do is they would bring an animal, and they would sacrifice it at the altar. And it would be a substitute. It would die in their place. And and, and a big deal, as we saw over and over, was the blood. And we'll talk some more about the blood in this chapter. Uh, Blood was a symbol of that animal's life that was given uh, in exchange for yours. Right? And it was a substitute. It was a ransom price that was paid. It's life for your life. So you are now uh, forgiven 
and your life was ransomed, and you could have peace with God. So, so to, to put this all, to kind of even back up even further, so here's the picture. God, in his grace, not because he's a mean God, but out of his love and goodness, saw the Israelites suffering in Egypt. And out of his love and grace, he rescued them out of slavery. Right? He rescued them by his power. Then he brought them out into the wilderness, and he showed them how to deal with their sin. And he uh, made this means of atonement, this means of forgiveness. Uh, because he loved them. And because he wanted them to be clean, he wanted them to have a way to deal with the junk in their life. Right? So the laws are not about getting saved. Right? The law is not about earning God's favor or merit. Right? God already loved them. God already saved them. God already worked a, a, a means for them to, to be with him through the blood of a sacrifice. But God did expect them to be different. And so chapter 17 through 27, the key word is holiness. They were to be a people who reflected God's love and character and atoning work. They were to be holy like him. Of course, um, if you have law without atonement, what you get is legalism. Man-made righteousness, doing things to prove to God that I'm a good person. And that is not what this is about, right? Flip side, if you have atonement but don't have holiness what you end up with is something very shallow and something very man-centered and self-centered. But it's all about me. And uh, I, get, I get clean so I can feel better about myself, but I don't really care about God's honor or his glory. But in Leviticus, we see both these things come together. God's, God's atoning work of, of dealing with sin, but also his expectation that his people reflect who he is as a holy God. And so obedience is to be a part of the Christian life. It's not legalism. And I was confused about that for a long time. I grew up in a church that was very legalistic, and then I learned about grace. And so I ditched everything law, right? It's like, well, I can do whatever because I'm under grace. Um, but that's not true, right? God calls us to a life of holiness. And, and uh, in case you think, well, that's just an Old Testament thing. You know, that was true in Leviticus, but it's not true in the New Testament. What's interesting is uh, virtually all of Paul's letters follow this exact pattern of how he wrote his epistles, right? The first half he talks about atonement, about what Jesus has done to deal with our sin. Second half he deals with holiness, right? What it means to be a Christian and to walk out and live this life that is different and distinct from the world around us. That is our witness, right? That is how we show the world who God is, um, so let's look at, at, at this. Uh, he, he basically breaks this down in these two chapters into two ways that they show God's glory through their lifestyle. One, by the way they worship, and the second, by the way they live. Um, uh, the, the way they worship, I'm going to go through real briefly, real quick. Uh, chapter 17, I didn't read any of it. Um, but in this chapter 17, he gives um, what looks like more rules about food. Right, he says, if you're going to have a barbecue in your backyard, <clears throat> can't do it. The only place you can have a barbecue is at the temple. Right, so if you're going to eat meat of any kind, if you're going to have a, uh, meat of any kind, you need to take it to the, to the temple and kill it there. Uh, he talks about not eating blood. He talks about, like, if you go hunting, what you're supposed to do to make sure you drain the blood out. And it would be easier for us to think, oh, this is just more rules about food. But actually, these are not rules about food. They're actually rules about worship. And the point of, of all this, I'm, I'm not going to go into great depth, but the point is they were to worship God alone. 
and, and these, these, these rules related to their worship that they wouldn't be tempted to offer sacrifices to any other God besides Yahweh, the great I am. Um, so he says in verse 17, kind of sums it up. He says, they shall no more offer sacrifices they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore or prostitute themselves. This shall be a statue forever for them throughout their generations. And the problem for them was that uh, in those days, uh, worshiping gods always involved killing animals. And uh, they did not go to Lotus or Big C or Macro to buy their meat. If you wanted a hamburger, you went out to the backyard and you killed, you killed the cow. And you, 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 you had your hamburger, right? So it was very easy for them to confuse fixing dinner with worship. Um, and it's much like here we see in Thailand. Thailand, everything is religious. Uh, nothing here is secular, right? Everything is connected with religion. And that's what makes one of the things hard for people when they come to Christ, is everything in their culture has religious meaning. But that was true in their day. And so... When you went in the backyard and killed, killed a, a cow for, for dinner, it had religious meaning. And so to make sure that they uh, only worshiped God, he said, look, you've got you to bring every, every animal sacrifice to the altar and, and offer it there as a fellowship offering. And, and we'll take the blood and we will make atonement. And then you can enjoy that meal. And, and you were to do it always in God's presence. And you were never to sacrifice to any other God but Jehovah, but Yahweh. Right. He was to be their one true and living God. Um, then he goes into a big long section about blood. And again, I want to get too bogged down in this, but um, I, they, they were to never eat blood. And let me just read a, a little bit about the, the eating blood. He says, If anyone in the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn, the aliens who eat who, among them, eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from his people. And here's the reason. Here's why. It's not just because it's gross, although I think it's gross, okay? Now, some of you who are Asian, you're like, I don't get the problem. <laughs> Personally, I think it's gross, right? But that's not the reason. In fact, to them, it wasn't gross. And as we'll see, that's part of the problem. He says, that here's the reason. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Um, this was unique in all the religions of that time. And in fact, I believe it's still unique to this day. That uh, Christianity alone affirms that there is atonement by a substitutionary sacrifice and that that blood is atoning. And for us, of course, it's the blood of Jesus. Right? All other religions they offered sacrifices, but it wasn't atoning. It was a way of bribing God. Right? I, would, I would give God a goat because I thought he liked goats. Or I would give him a cow because I thought he liked cows. And I thought if I gave it to him, he would be happy with me that I fed him because he was hungry. And he would help me because I gave him what he wanted. It was a way of manipulating the gods. But God was not manipulated by the sacrifices. Uh, but it was a means of atonement. And so they were to respect two things. They were to respect life. Now, they could eat the cow... <laughs> Uh, they could eat uh, the chicken. Uh, they could not eat the pig. Right? Uh, but they could, eat, they could eat meat. But they needed to respect this life. And one of the ways that they showed respect for that life was to not eat the blood. But more importantly, they were to respect and to remember atonement. 
Right? They honored the blood. They treated the blood differently and carefully because it was to remind them that their life was bought with a price, and that price was blood. It was the blood of the offering. Right? And so it was sacred. It was special. And it was to be handled carefully. So they were not to eat it. Right? They were to drain it. Anytime they killed an animal, they would be careful that its blood was, uh, was, was dealt with. Right? Well, they, they did not eat it. Um, so the point of all that is that their worship was to be distinct and unique. Right? Their worship was to look very different. And in fact, if, if you could have gone back in that time and seen how the Israelites worshipped and how everybody else worshipped, you would have noticed something very different about their worship. Uh, that should be true of us as believers, right? Our worship should be different, right? It should be rooted in atonement. It should be rooted in the truth and fact that God has forgiven us, right? And that we celebrate what God has done to redeem our life. Uh, we don't come to church to earn God's favor. Like, God, see how much money I gave in the offering? Now you owe me one, right? We don't get together and we don't go, look, God, I went to church ten Sundays in a row. Like, I got ten stars on the chart, right? Like, you owe me something. Like, I should get something, like, special for that. Right? that that's not what characterizes our worship. Our worship is, man, God is awesome, and he loves us, and he's poured out his grace in our life, and we want to celebrate his goodness, right? So our worship should be like theirs. It should be distinctive, and it should be based on praise and worship of God's great saving work. Let me turn the corner, and in chapter 18, he, he talks about um, worshiping God, honoring God by the way you live. And uh, this is a great chapter. Uh, I wish we had time to really go through it verse by verse, because there's, like I said, there's a lot of nakedness, and, and you know, it's just fun to talk about uncovering the nakedness of all these people in your family. But actually, I'm kind of embarrassed by it, so um, I'm not going to really talk about that too much, because it, it, it makes me kind of squeamish. What's interesting is that he starts with um, a lifestyle that begins with a family. When you look through this chapter, what ties it all together is that all these relationships he's talking about, the way we deal with people in our family, uh, it, it starts with the home. And, and all this, so actually, um, we, we could use this, this title, by the way you live, to describe the next ten chapters. But he starts with uh, honoring God by the way you live in the home with your family, because this is really the starting point of righteousness. But I was just talking with Patrick about that this morning. He made a good comment that, you know, it's the, it's the family that is the hardest place to live out our righteousness. But if we get it right in the family, we're probably getting it right everywhere else. And all the wives said, amen, right? It's like, yeah, I know what my husband's really like. Husbands, yeah, I know what my wife is. We know what we're like, because in the home, it's easy to be too much ourselves, Right? We can't wear a mask in the family. We can wear it everywhere else. We can fool other people, but in the family, it gets real. Um, and so it was important that the families, ultimately, first and foremost, that God's glory was, was, was visible in the way they treated each other as family. And those relationships were be to, char- to be characterized by purity. And specifically in this chapter, um, a lot of it is about sexual purity about honoring each other by being careful about how we uh, think and look and treat uh, those in our family and actually those outside the family to honor our wives by being careful about how we uh, even think sexually about those outside of our marriage relationship. 
so, so he lists here basically five categories of relationships surrounding the family that are dishonoring to God, that are not holy. And these were issues because in the cultures where they, they lived, these were not the standard. Right? The, first, the first one we see is incest. Uh, and that gets described uh, briefly in verse 6. as none of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncovered nakedness. I am the Lord. Uh, uncovered nakedness was a euphemism, a polite way of talking about um, sexual contact, contact. And specifically, in this chapter, it's about marriage. So he's not necessarily talking about, uh, I mean, it would, it would apply to any kind of incestual relationship, but he's really talking mostly here about who you can marry. Um, and, and it was common in those cultures to marry close family. And so we, we have all kinds of descriptions. Uh, parents cannot have any kind of sexual contact with a child. And he uses the word uncovered nakedness because nakedness is, is in the Old Testament, and I think mostly today, is, is shameful. Right? Uh, I remember uh, when I was first preaching, I, I was so, I, I hated it actually. And I was so terrified to be in front of people. And I really did feel in many ways just mostly naked. I felt vulnerable, right? I felt exposed. And I would have these nightmares all the time that I would get up in front of church and I'd start preaching away and realize I forgot to put my pants on. <laughs> I was like, ah! It was just really awkward, right? Um, thankfully, it never happened in real life. Um, but just this feeling of shame, right? Of embarrassment. And that goes all the way back to the garden. You know, Adam and Eve were created. They were naked and they were not ashamed. But what happened? Sin came and sin, the, the fruit of sin is death, but it's also shame, embarrassment. We know that there is just something wrong about us. We know that we are not right. And so we feel shame. We feel exposed. We feel vulnerable. And the most obvious place that that, that displays itself is, is in our nakedness. And so to uncover somebody's nakedness was to shame them, was to humiliate and embarrass them. And so he says that, uh, that we're not to do that Right, there's to be a marriage relationship between a man and a wife, and the person you can marry cannot be a close relative. It cannot be a parent to a child. It cannot be between siblings. It cannot be between a grandparent and grandchild. It cannot be to an aunt and an uncle, kind of the main relationships. And not only those people, but their spouses. Right? So again, it's not so much... It, it obviously pro- pro- uh, prohibits uh, having sexual contact with your child, but... Uh, or, but, but in the case of an aunt or an uncle, if they were widowed or lost their spouse, uh, can you marry them? Well, he says no, right? There needs to be boundaries. And part of the problem in their day is they, they lived in very large extended families. So this was a real risk. It wasn't just mom and dad and two kids. It was mom and dad, two kids, grandma and grandpa, other grandma and grandpa, aunts and uncles, cousins. You know, it, was, it was big families that lived together. And so there was risk that, that if they didn't have clear boundaries that these Sexual boundaries would get crossed. And they weren't to do that. They were to be pure. And to, to, to break that was to bring shame on themselves and shame on their people and ultimately shame on God's name. Second category, um, adultery. Right? So adultery is any kind of sexual relationship with anybody outside of the person you're married to. Right? Uh, Simple definition. He said, you are not to have sexual relationships with anybody you're not married to. 
and you can't marry family, right? So, by the way, you can marry cousins. So if you're worried about that, cousins were not mentioned in the list. So if you're from certain states in the United States, I won't mention. It's okay. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> um, but but, it's, but having, uh, if you are married or single, right, s- sex is for marriage, right? And again, these rules are not because God is mean. It is not because he doesn't want us to enjoy life. It's because he wants to protect the family and he wants ultimately to protect us. He says these things are exposing yourself. It brings on you shame and embarrassment. And it breaks the way the family works. And certainly if you've been around families where there has been unfaithfulness and, and immorality and adultery, it, it wreaks havoc in families. I praise God he can forgive and he can heal. And there is always hope, right? There is always hope. But it damages relationships. And God knew that. So he tells us this to protect us and to guard us and to guard our hearts and our, our purity. But more than that, as we'll see in a minute, he does it to protect his glory and his honor. Right? These rules are not just because it makes family work better. These rules is because they were to display God's glory to the world around them. They were to be distinct and unique. As Christians, one of the things that in the world, especially in the world today, you want to set yourself apart, stay morally pure in, in your sexual life. Right? Stay away from uh, internet pornography. Stay away from unfaithful relationships. Stay away from premarital sex. And you will be different. And in fact, the world will laugh at you. Right? Because they'll think you are weird. But that's the point. Right? We distinguish ourselves by showing the character and nature of God by being different. Next one. Uh, he says... Um, um, uh, you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife. That's adultery. And make her unclean. Uh, make yourself unclean with her. You shall, um, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech. And so profane the name of the Lord. I, I am the Lord your God. Uh, child sacrifice. Uh, this is so horrible that for a long time Bible scholars believed that, that they didn't actually do this. But actually recent archaeological digs have found evidence and proof that back in those days they actually did offer their children uh, on sacrifices to the gods. They killed their children and burned them on the altars uh, as a way of appeasing, as a way of giving the god what they wanted. So maybe you're sick, maybe you're about to hit huge financial ruin, and so you need something big. So you offer your child as a sacrifice. You kill your child, hoping that the god will turn away his anger, right? He says, do not ever do that. Two reasons. One, they shouldn't be worshiping Moloch in the first place. But second of all, your child was entrusted you to protect and to care for. Right? How could you think about using them for your own gain? And that's what it comes down to. And there's a good principle there that we as parents should never use our children for selfish gain. Uh, there's a lot of ways that we could still sacrifice our children, not to Moloch, but to other things. Uh, to our own agenda, to our own ego, right? Um, not to do that. Um, moving down this, this great list of things, uh, it gets better. Um, 
You shall not lie with a male as with a, with a woman. It's an abomination. Homosexuality is, is an abomination to God. Right? The word abomination basically means it's detestable. It is repulsive. Right? And, uh, and I know, and, and I've, I preached on this before and I've gotten in trouble, because I know that there are people here who wrestle with that. Having urges and having desires for someone of the same sex is not a sin. Right? Just like it, it just so happens I, I, I have desires for women. Right? The desire in itself is not bad. If I act on that with anybody other than my wife, that's a problem. Right? He's talking here about acting out your impulses. Right? It is an abomination to God. It is detestable. And it was widely practiced in their culture, and, I mean in Egypt and in, in Canaan. And God said, this is not to be true of you. Right? It is a horrible sin. A horrible sin. It's an abomination. It is repulsive to God. Uh, and lastly, uh, love this one. You shall not lie with an animal so as to make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is a perversion. Like, I just don't even want to think about that one, right? Crazy enough, in, in Canaanite, there were actually cults where women would live with goats. And they would try to mate and breed with goats because they believed that uh, some of the gods got to earth that way, right? Uh, it's just, it's sick, right? It's, and he says, do not do that, right? With any kind of animal, off limits, okay? And just to be clear, I want to be sure that you see what's in this list. Child sacrifice, sex with animals is in the same list as homosexuality and adultery, Right, so you get the picture of how God views these things. Uh, with Bestial, he says that it is a perversion. Uh, a perversion is a twisting and a confusing of the right order of how God intended things. Right? We, we are messing with the way God created and designed the world and created us and how he intends things to be. Um, so, so what do we do with this? Or, um, A lot of people will say, well, you know, um, in the Old Testament, you know, you weren't supposed to eat pork and you weren't supposed to have homosexual relations, but, you know, now we can eat pork, so therefore homosexuality is okay, right? Um, I've heard that, right? Uh, is that true, right? Well, let, let, let's look at a couple of things here. First of all, why is God saying this to them? Well, he's saying this to them mostly because he's aware of how easily our moral compass can be set by culture instead of God's standards. He says, don't let these customs... He says, don't, you shall not walk in their statutes. Literally, the word is customs. Do not walk in their customs. You shall follow my rules. And, you know, we look at this passage and we think, man, offering your child in a sacrifice, who would even think of that? But the reality was, in their day, this was what you did. Like, they wouldn't have thought of anything about that. They wouldn't have thought, well, that's horrible. They would have just thought, wow, if somebody had to do that, life was pretty bad for them, but, you know, sometimes you've got to do what you've got to do. Okay? For them, this was normal. Uh, having sex with a goat. Like, we're like, that's just, like, creeps me out. For them, this is, like, normal. Why was it normal to them? Because their culture said it was okay, Right? Culture had impacted their thinking. 
uh, eating blood like was a normal part of culture. And maybe we can identify with that more here because like we see that all around. You go to a restaurant half the time and there's blood. And if you haven't figured out what that is yet, ask somebody because maybe that really yummy jello you think you're eating is actually not jello. Um, and you didn't know. Ah, I didn't know. Um, right? It's accepted here. If you grow up with that, you don't think about it, right? They eat bugs here. Like, they want me to eat bugs, okay? I'm not okay with that, right? But here's the, here's the point. What makes it okay is when you live in a place where everyone around you is doing it and it's culturally okay, it becomes super easy to think, this is right. This is okay. And, and here's, the, here's my main point. Uh, do not... Let not your conscience be your guide. Jiminy Cricket had it all wrong, right? And I know, it's like, how could it be wrong? It was a Disney movie, right? But um, if you don't know the movie, Pinocchio, he has this little cricket that talks and he's cute, right? So how can you not believe somebody who's a cricket that's cute? And, and he sings this song, let your conscience be your guide, right? And our conscience at some level is our guide. But what we need to understand is that our conscience has been programmed not by the word often, but by culture. And so here's the problem. Oftentimes, we evaluate right and wrong based on our conscience, based on what we feel about things. And more and more, the world is saying, that's okay. Homosexual relationships, it's, it's not sin, it's a lifestyle. It's a sexual preference, right? Being whatever sex you want to call yourself is, yours, is your choice, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's what you get to do. Right? If you don't feel male, you can be female. Or you can be, I guess now there's like 15 different categories for what you can be. I don't even, I don't even know how you, how you do that, right? Um, and the world can, can do that. But what we have to guard against is that we let culture start shaping our view of what's right and wrong. And we set our moral compass by the culture around us. And sadly, I've seen too many people who have been in this very room, in this very church, leave here and walk into very immoral lifestyles, very sinful, with the sense that it's okay. Because they are letting their conscience be their guide. And and what, what God is saying here is it is not a matter of culture. He says, you need to set your moral compass by my statutes and my guidelines because the world is whacked. Right? The world is off 180 degrees on what moral north is. So don't follow culture. Um, and, and the basis for this is not simply that God loves rules. And what's really important here is the word for, for rules and statutes that he used here. He says you need to follow my, my rules and my statutes. Verse 4. You need to walk in them. And he says, I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh. I am the great I am your God. And here's one of the problems for us as mostly Western people who come from democratic cultures. We, uh, many years ago, thanks to some really bright people, we adopted the slogan that the law is king. What that meant is back in the old days, long before that phrase got invented, the king was king and the king got to tell you what the rules were. And the king got to change the rules whenever he liked, right? And so law was based on a person on the preferences and will, and, and ultimately the character of a person. So if you had a good king who had good morals, who had good character, he was the one who implemented and enforced rules that represented his heart and his character. But we decided, uh, maybe rightly so, that kings were too fallen, sinful, and corrupt, and we wanted 
rules that didn't change. They weren't based on the whims of kings. And we decided that even the kings needed to follow rules and morals and have their own ethical standard that was above them. So we said that the law is king, that we're going to write down these moral codes and that those are going to be the basis of right and wrong. And it sounded good, and in many sense it was good for a while. But here's the problem. Those written codes, those written rules, are not personal. Right? It's just words on a piece of paper. And what do they really represent? Who stands behind them? Well, mostly what stands behind them is some kind of logic. Like, of course, killing your children would be wrong because they can't become adults. Right? And that's kind of the logic we use. Well, why, can't, why, why is it bad for them not become adults? Well, they can't have children. And the species will go extinct. Right? And, and we use that kind of logic to, to justify our written codes. Right? Because there's no one behind them. But God does not put out a code that's based on logic or on reason or on something that makes sense. Now, of course, a lot of these do make sense to us. And God's laws do make sense. But that's not why we follow them. We do not follow rules and laws because they are logical and make sense. And here's the, here's the principle. God bases his rules not just on logic or on what seems to work, but it's on his very character. It's on who he is as a person. He says, I am the great I am. My character is holy and perfect. I never make mistakes I never do what is wrong. Uh, he is good in the very depths of his being. Right? And so he says, this, this is an outflow of me. Right? What I'm talking about here, the kinds of relationships and character and what I'm spelling out is who I am as God. And so when I call you to these things, I'm calling you not just to random rules that if they don't make sense, I can chuck. So that's the problem in our modern world. People have said, well, homosexuality makes great sense to us. Like, if people love each other, male, female, whatever, right? It, I don't understand why it matters. They love each other. See, it sounds logical. But the basis of, of morals is not logic. It is the character of God. And it is displaying who he is and how he has arranged and ordered the world, Right? So our culture, our, our customs, our rules come from his character, and we must be beware, you know, danger beware. Your culture around you is brainwashing you, right? And the problem is that all too often we as Christians are oblivious to how we're being impacted by culture. And more dangerously, we are, uh, we are oblivious as how culture is impacting our children. We think, I homeschool my kids to protect them from all of that. My kids go to a Christian school to protect them from all of that. I teach them. I'm discipling them to protect them from all of that. I'm telling you, it is not enough. Culture is impacting the hearts and minds of your kids every single day. I don't know how it happens. I don't know if like, it's in the water. I don't know how this happens. But they are being impacted. And it doesn't matter how, unless you've locked them in a room and they've never seen the outdoors, right? I'm telling you, they are being shaped by culture. And more and more, they are, they are accepting as okay things that the Bible says here are not okay. Right? 
And so we have to be careful and be aware. Um, let me give you one example. We're out of time. But let me give you one example of, of how this works. Um, and there's lots of ones. Like a, we could talk about abortion. We could talk about homosexuality. Uh, we could talk about uh, the way children are treated. But let's just do this one because I think this is one that's subtle enough to help us see the problem. How many of you believe God is love? Nobody wants to raise their hand. <laughs> of course, God is love, right? God is love. Um, and, uh, and, but interestingly, the world also believes that, right? And there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a scream for modern culture, especially in the West, to tell us, you as the church need to, need to lift up and you need to preach and teach a God of love. Because that's a God that we could buy into. Right? And so a lot of churches have gone down this path and a lot of churches will only talk about God's love. Uh, but that actually is not uh, the full description of who, is, uh, of who God is. I just read this morning in Isaiah chapter 6 and uh, Isaiah is standing before the throne of God in his holy temple in heaven and the majesty and glory of his robe fills the temple. Right? And there's these cherubim there, and their faces are covered so that they, they do not gaze on the wonder of God. And their feet are covered so that the, the, the uncleanness of unholy feet that have been places that contaminate God are covered. And they fly around and they, they shout out, Love! 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 Right? Is that what they shout? Holy! 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 Right? God is first holy. And the problem is that we, uh, our culture and our world, and God is love, and part of his holy character is loving. But here's the problem. Our culture has redefined what love is, and what love is this. Love is being nice. Right? Love never tells people what's wrong. Love never shares your opinion. Love is nice. And when they say we want, a God, and we want you to preach a God who's loving, what they really mean is we want to preach you to preach a God who's nice. Right? who won't tell me what to do and who won't wreck my life and who will let me do whatever I want because that's love, right? That is not love, right? Imagine, uh, imagine you're, at a, you're at a party and there's hundreds of people in a big room and they're dancing and having a great time and you go to the bathroom and on the way back you realize the whole building's on fire. And uh, in just a matter of moments, the access out of the room is going to be cut off and this room is going to be engulfed in flames. And you say, wow, you think, well, should I say something? Well, it would wreck their party. It would, they, they wouldn't like it. It would, it would, you know, I would interrupt them. I would have to share my opinions. Maybe I better just be quiet, right? Would that be the loving thing to do? Of course not. That would be the most hateful thing you could do, right? You'd be guilty of their blood. But that's what the world says, right? Um, we talk about children and in parenting. Part of parenting is disciplining your children, right? We just don't let children do whatever. Yeah, play in the street, play with electricity. Don't let us tell you what's right and wrong, right? Because we love you. Well, that's not love, right? Same with God. God is a holy God. I just saw the statistic that said uh, 50% of evangelical millennials, well, is that an oxymoron or not? I'm not sure, but... Uh, evangelical millennials are, I'm getting myself in all kinds of trouble today. Um, 50% of young people who claim to be Bible-believing Christians say it is morally wrong to share the gospel. 
right? Because, you know, that's not loving, telling people that you're under God's judgment because of your sin. And if you don't come under the blood of Jesus, you will face eternal destruction in hell. That's truth, right? And we, we, we worship not only a loving God, but also a holy God to whom we will answer for our life. Right? And, and as believers, we, we want to be people who reflect his true character. We should be loving people. And, and, and like, like people who are caught in these lifestyles of sin, people who are homosexual, who are not believers, man, I love them. And I don't judge them. And I'm not going to tell them they're sinning, right? Because um, they're not believers, right? They're not, they're not under God's word yet. The task is to bring them to the atonement, to the life-changing power of the cross. Right? I don't need to battle against them. Right? But, but if they're a believer, I'm going to tell them what the Bible says. Uh, it's wrong. It's sin. Right? And you can't live a life that is Christ-honoring if you're walking in those things. If you're living an immoral lifestyle, if you're addicted to porn, if you're sleeping with somebody who's not your wife, it is dishonoring the name of God and it is not making you distinct and separate. It is not making you a a witness that's going to be powerful, that's going to show people not only the love of God, but the holy character of God before whom every human being will one day stand. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.